0: Serial Killing a Podcast is researched, written, produced, and hosted by me, Alyssa Carroll. This is an independent production, no network, no contracts, and I need your support. Please subscribe, follow on my socials linked below, or go to my Patreon to show your support. Thank you so much. Friends. Fifteen years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am evil. Not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. So, guys, before we get started, I just wanted to say that I understand kind of what I took on when it came to deciding that I was going to cover Scott Peterson. Whether you agree or disagree with his guilty verdict, um, just behave yourselves, be good citizens, be nice, don't be trolls. That is all I ask. So here we go. Hello again, guys. Welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to my patrons, my benevolent benefactors, if you will. They voted for this episode and they also get early access to each podcast. So thank you guys. You guys are awesome. Today's podcast was voted for by patrons, as well as everyone on Instagram, as well as the Facebook page polls that I put out. So thank you to those who voted. There were a lot of you, and I really appreciate that. Now, this is going to be a sort of refresher of the Scott Peterson case. Now, it is not lost on me that this man has been covered to death. And really, when we're talking about Scott Peterson, he nearly completes Like the metaphorical holy trinity of true crime, honestly. You know, right up there with like John Bonet and the Menendez brothers. Well, I mean, we can't forget OJ. So the quad, the quad, the holy quadruple of true, doesn't matter. So even when Scott wasn't in the news for whatever reason, we were quite honestly violated with the somewhat similar kind of flavors of the Chris Watts case or perhaps Josh Powell and many others. Regardless, I feel that Scott may very well be getting a new trial since the Los Angeles Innocence Project claims to have evidence of his innocence and what they claim it is. I'm not going to cover what went wrong during the juror process or mistakes in the trial. No trial goes completely smoothly. There will always be a juror that has lied or exaggerated in order to be chosen for big cases, The prosecution makes mistakes, so does the defense, and we all already know that they are there to win their case. The guilt or the innocence is unfortunately an afterthought or a second thought, but the trial itself has very little to do with whether or not Scott Peterson actually murdered his wife and thus his unborn son. He either did it or he didn't, regardless of the trial. So what I want to focus on is the evidence, no matter how circumstantial, along with the eyewitness testimony from people who had no dog in this fight, no bias, at least as much as possible. I want to look at all of the factors surrounding the timeline of events and refresh our memories of the little things that make sort of the whole picture. Then you can decide for yourself whether or not You think he's actually guilty. Now, when I brought this case up to everyone to see if they wanted me to do this, I actually received a few comments from people that are not from the United States. Shout out to Australia. You guys follow me. Love ya. But anyway, they stated that they didn't really know all that much about this case. They definitely wanted to know more. So if some of this sounds repetitive or it's, you know, whatever, we are sharing globally. Okay, so I guess the best place to start is at the beginning. Scott Lee Peterson was born on October 24th, 1972 in San Diego, California. We will skip the history portion because we have just so much to go through. Oh, by the way, that makes him a Scorpio. Now, there isn't a lot of background information about his parents, but I will give you what I could find. His father is Lee Arthur Peterson, and his mother was Jacqueline Helen Latham, and she went by Jackie. Jackie has already died, and as of this recording in February of 2024, Lee is still alive. Now, we know that Lee had originally hailed from Worthington, Minnesota, and had been born in 1939. He stated at some point that his maternal grandmother had immigrated here from Lithuania at just 15 years old by herself, with a promise of a job once she arrived. She married, had children, and one of her daughters is, of course, Lee's mother. A source said Lee's mother worked various cleaning jobs along with her mother. It was said that out of 12 children, Lee was the youngest, At 17 years old, he said that he'd left home and joined the Navy. At some point, Lee was married to a woman named Mary and had three children before he met Jackie. Those children are Mark, Susan, and Joe. The couple divorced. In the time I had, I really couldn't find out anything else about Lee's background. Just very kind of blue collar. Now, Jackie was born in 1943 in San Diego. Her father was John Latham, born in 1913 in Los Angeles. Her mother was Lita Helen Hickson. She went by Helen. She hailed from Logan, Oklahoma. The pair married in Comanche, Oklahoma in 1939. Now, as the story goes, John owned, this is Jackie's father, so he owned a salvage and tire shop on Main Street in San Diego he and Helen had four children together, three boys and Jackie. When Jackie was two years old, her father was murdered at his shop just before Christmas in 1945 by one of his employees that he had had to fire only a couple of days before the murder. Scott's half-sister wrote in her book that they found his body under the Coronado Bridge, his skull cracked open from a metal pipe that lay beside him. The former employee admitted to the crime, but the death was more than Helen could bear. So according to the site, Find a Grave, Helen tried her best to work through her anguish and take care of all of these children, but she just couldn't mentally handle it. She couldn't financially keep up with it. So it was said that Helen took all four of her children to a Catholic home called the Nazareth House. The nuns that ran the facility, according to Helen, would only allow her to visit her children once a week. Jackie, in her late teens, would later reunite with her mother, but it wasn't rainbows and sunshine. You know, Helen was older, she was really sick, and it was just expected of Jackie to care for her. One of Jackie's brothers would later tell one of Jackie's children that he and the brothers had eventually been put in separate homes, save Jackie, who was left in this kind of orphanage. He described the orphanage as terrible, but he and the boys and Jackie had managed, thankfully, to be able to stay in touch throughout the years, and I think that's nice. Now, Jackie had three children by three different fathers, as far as I could find, before she met Lee. Jackie had said, quote, those nuns never talked to me about sex. I was very naive. Her oldest's name is Dawn. He was born in 1963, and he was adopted and raised east, out east in Pennsylvania, according to the book Blood Brother, written by Jackie's second child, which was a daughter named Anne, born in 1965. Anne was adopted and raised in a wonderfully loving family, and she was quite, Proud to say so, really. Then Jackie had John and apparently kept him, but Jackie had these three children before she met and married Lee. Lee raised John, the youngest one, as his own, and then together they had Scott. So Lee had three kids from a prior marriage. Jackie had given birth three times. The third one she kept and Lee raised. Number four was Scott. Okay. Now, sources say that Lee was working as a truck driver when Jackie met him at a community college. Their courtship was a fast one, and they married in 1971. And then, of course, Scott was born the next year. In 1975, Lee upgraded from being a truck driver to owning a crate building shop. Interestingly, one source said that the real story is a mystery as to how Lee went from a truck driver to being a millionaire shipper, shipping in quotations art to mexico as they said a bit of a conspiracy about you know how did he make all that money and stuff so i took the time i went to the company site had a look around reviews and whatnot and it seems that he really built up a business building wooden crates of various sizes to pack up important items and shipments so one can imagine lee's services and products would not be cheap. But if you want the best to secure whatever you are shipping to ensure it's waterproof and so on, you're going to have to pay. They have expanded into making pallets and skids and a variety of other products. But the point is that it seems legit to me. If you really think about it, the man was a truck driver, so he hauled things, right? And being married to a truck driver, I can assure you that the drivers can think of much, much better ways to pack things, to haul things long distances and whatnot so to me it seems like he saw a need and he met that need and he became financially successful from it now if there's some shady dealings going on I couldn't find them but there's that now Lee being outdoorsy and believing that if his children learned to do the things he liked they would end up spending more time together taught all of his children to golf to fish and hunt pheasant sounds wonderful to me So, okay, getting into Scott's childhood. I am only kind of touching the basis here, but I found a fantastic article that gives more details about his childhood, and I've put the link to that in the notes in case you're interested. But by the time Scott was born, Jackie had opened a small boutique in La Jolla, California, and it was said that she brought infant Scott to work with her. Customers would see him behind the counter playing and vocalizing in a crib behind the counter. Sources stated that, as a small child, he was never really in any trouble. People described little Scott as quiet, rather polite. Now, during elementary school, and specifically fifth grade, it was said that he was a crossing guard for the kids crossing the streets coming to and from school, and he took this job Very seriously, his teachers and the other adults really commended him for this. Also as a child, Lee and Jackie had an apartment in La Jolla, and Scott and his next older brother, John, shared a bedroom. But things seemed normal. Both parents worked. Scott wanted for nothing. There are family photos of Scott as a child, and we see regular birthday parties with balloons gifts, a cake, smiling parents, and a very genuinely happy little Scott sitting amongst these things with this just big genuine happy smile. Then Lee started taking Scott golfing at an early age. By the time he was nearing his mid-teens, he could beat Lee at the game, and Scott loved playing golf. But the big overall picture, right, is that Scott had a very normal and loving upbringing. His parents absolutely doted on him. Nearly all sources referred to Scott as, quote, the golden boy. His parents would openly call him this. Most of us fully understand what that means. But I think it's important to talk about this label anyway, especially with this case. So, according to the website Choosing Therapy, a golden child, in quotes, is one who is considered special by their family and chosen as a proxy for a parent's own achievements and magnificence. Although the term golden child syndrome persists, it's not actually a medical or psychological disorder, and therefore, no clinical definition for this syndrome exists. However... Within a narcissistic family structure, there is typically one child whom the narcissist family member, usually a parent, favors as they see that child as the um, embodiment of all of the virtues that they believe themselves to hold. Now, I couldn't find enough information out about Lee's past behaviors or how others perceived him to have any clue as to whether or not he has flavors of narcissism. I wish, at least in the time I had to research, I just started a new job, guys, cut me some slack. I could have found out more about his background and personality. I wish I could have. But there could be something there. I can't really say. But when it comes to Jackie, I'm on the fence. Again, the source material varied a bit when it came to her. But from what we know to be true about her background... There at least could be something there. She had three children from three different men back in the 60s, which had, would have been tremendously scandalous. And we'll get a little bit more into why I think Jackie might have possibly had flavors of narcissism or something. We'll get to it. So Jackie's father had been murdered and her mother felt she simply couldn't work and make enough money to support her children. You know, she's having bad mental health things. She also lost her husband. She was very deeply depressed. So Jackie and her brothers were given up. That had to be traumatic. Some sources stated the Catholic orphanage that Jackie grew up in was well known for pedophilia. So I feel as though Jackie most likely had some negative self Views. She gave birth to the first two children and they were immediately adopted. The third she kept. Then she got married to a man who provided, and from what I can tell, was good to her, loved her, and she finally had some level of normalcy and routine in her life. So at this point now, she could hold her head up high, right? If you get what I mean in this day and age, her backstory would still be rather tragic, of course, but We don't tend to judge women as harshly about having children outside of marriage, which is a good thing. You know, mind your own fucking business, right? But back then, she would have been judged, looked down upon, treated differently, etc. So after she got married, settled, opened her boutique, and she had Scott, she was a part of a very real family unit she'd never had. She was able to relax a bit and pay all of the attention to Scott that she couldn't the others. He was conceived and born into legitimacy. That's what she would have thought. He became the child that she put on the pedestal. Quote, Those with narcissistic personality disorder identify with their golden child and place the burden of living out their greatness on the child. These expectations may include the child excelling in ways that the narcissist falsely believes themselves to excel, whether this is in academics, athletics, or some other performative avenue of expression. The parent lives vicariously through the child, and the child is expected to bring prestige to the family. See what I'm saying? And unfortunately, the pressure that a parent puts on a child. That kind of pressure can have a negative effect from childhood through adulthood. Now, I'm not saying that Jackie was a narcissist. Not at all. But the description still holds true. She didn't seem to try to hide the fact that Scott was her favorite. She told her other children that Scott was the golden boy. Imagine hearing that from your own mother about your sibling. Now, I wasn't raised with... I had... Three half-siblings. I wasn't raised with a one of them, so I didn't really have to encounter that, but I bet a lot of you get it. I bet a lot of you get it. Let me know in the comments below. So did Jackie, and perhaps Lee, place a level of expectation on Scott that he could never live up to? I mean, it's plausible. It's possible. It's certainly not a stretch. If you listened to the Lucy Letby podcast I made pretty recently, then you know how detrimental it can be to a child who has to live under this kind of pressure and expectation. But anyway, during high school, again, people said that he was quite intelligent, he was kind, and Scott had dreams of becoming a professional golfer. It was said that he was actually teammates with future pro golfer Phil Mickelson at the University of San Diego High School. I'm not going to sit here and pretend to know who that is, because my only knowledge of golf is Tiger Woods for Xbox, and my skills are unmatched, guys. Shout out to my family who have never been able to beat me. Yo, what's up? Whew, my apologies. So by the end of high school, he was one of the top junior golfers in San Diego, and that really is something, right? How very proud his parents must have been. How possibly envious his peers would have been. Scott must have been destined for greatness, right? He's the golden boy. And through a partial golf scholarship, Scott got an admission to join Arizona State University. One of his teammates said, quote, he was the biggest snob. He was always talking about how good his golf game was and how much better he was than the others, End quote. He later dropped out of the university after he was kicked off the university golf team due to indecent behavior. Word around the campfire is that the father of one of his teammates was very upset that Scott had taken his son out drinking and partying and his son had been hung over the next day. Quote, I found out that Scott had taken Chris out drinking and meeting girls, the father said. I called the, gol- the golf coach and told him I was very unhappy about that. Chris was the number one junior in the country and they really wanted him to play there. The coach called back and told me that he had thrown Scott Peterson off the golf team. End quote. But I'm going to give Scott a pass here, personally. Because that's just what a lot of college age young adults do. I just don't see that this behavior is off the cuff. They party and they flirt. It's all part of the process of learning about yourself, right? So him being kicked off seems kind of harsh, at least to me. I'll give him that. This is part of me trying to, you know, fresh eyes and all. So Scott wound up finishing college at California Polytechnic State University with a degree in agricultural business. His professors all had positive things to say about him being in their classrooms. No issues were reported whatsoever. But the point is that he gave up on being a professional golfer and went into business. And that had to have been kind of tough. Giving up on your dreams is harsh. I think we can all recognize that. Now, before we get into when and how Scott met Lacey, stick with me for a moment because I want to introduce another podcast to you guys. Give this a listen and go check out the Twisted and Uncorked podcast. Hello, Twisted Humans. Do you find yourself wanting to know more about the latest murder, conspiracy, cult, or haunting? Then this is the podcast for you. In 1952, there was a record high of UFOs reported. 1,500 sightings. There has been evidence of human sacrifice, devil worship, and it is haunted by more spirits than can be counted. A family of two adults and two kids reportedly saw a giant flying thing with glowing red eyes. And meanwhile, the family's nanny that helped Veronica to care for her and Lucian's children was found bludgeoned to death in the basement of their family home. I'm Alicia and I'm Sierra and this is Twisted Twisted and and Uncorked. Those girls sound a little ornery, don't they? Love it. Okay, so back to the story. Um, So Scott, while he was also working at a restaurant called the Pacific Cafe, this is where he met Lacey Rocha. I believe it's pronounced Rocha or Rocha. This was in 1994. So Scott was 22 years old Lacey was 19 for some perspective now Lacey saw him in the restaurant and really guys that was that she passed along her phone number the confidence am i right and announced to her mother that she had met the man that she would marry Lacey herself was in college when scott broke down and called her and they began dating they hit it off quickly And they began planning a life together once she finished her college degree in ornamental horticulture. They even took a big step of moving in together. So ornamental horticulture, not everyone may know about that, but the National Center for Education Statistics described ornamental horticulture as, quote, a program that focuses on domesticated plants and plant materials used for decorative and recreational applications and prepares individuals to breed, grow, and utilize ornamental plant varieties for commercial and aesthetic purposes. So in 1997, Lacey graduated and she and Scott were married that same year, but according to many sources, Scott just could not stay faithful. He allegedly confessed to family members who reiterated this fact in interviews, I heard them say it, that Scott had cheated on Lacey three or four times with different women. One must assume three that we aren't terribly aware of, then Amber, who we'll get to. One relative who does not believe Scott is guilty described him as a sex addict. Quote, he has a sexual problem and has a need to sleep with other women, the relative told Fox News. So Scott Peterson's family has contended that Lacey was aware of the affairs and that although she would get angry, she'd eventually put them behind her, put the stress of it behind her. Scott's mother, Jackie, has told relatives and friends that she knew her daughter-in-law was aware of at least one affair, even though later she said she didn't. And that she once saw the couple actually, Scott and Lacey, arguing about it. And this story or this version of it jives with Scott's half sister from Jackie, Anne, who wrote that book. Anne said in her book that she had been made aware that there was a bit of trouble in paradise, but that she stayed out of it and hoped whatever was going on would smooth over, so to speak. She was new to the family, so to speak. She'd been adopted out. After being born, she'd been raised by this fantastic family and she'd just kind of been introduced to the Petersons, you know, not too terribly long before the wedding. And really, most of us know better than to get in the middle of that sort of drama, right? Well, Anne felt it was none of her business and I would feel the same. I mean, you would want Lacey to know, but you get what I'm You get what I'm saying. But it is interesting that Scott told one of his mistresses from early in his marriage that he had no intention of having children, quote, because they would get in the way of my lifestyle, end quote. From a police report of an interview with this woman that they called Janet, so I don't know if that's her real name, quote, I asked Janet if her and Peterson talked about having a family. Janet said her and Peterson had gone to a rodeo on one of their dates, and there were kids present at the rodeo. Peterson told Janet he did not want kids because they would get in the way of his lifestyle. Janet said Peterson made it clear that kids were not in his future." In 1998, Lacey and Scott opened a sports bar they named The Shack. In 2001, they sold the bar as they were moving to Lacey's hometown of Modesto, so that she could be closer to her parents and also because Lacey wanted to start trying for a baby. They bought a three-bedroom, two-bath bungalow house for $177,000 in the upscale neighborhood near East La Loma Park. Wow, that sounds cheap for California. But I will say that his parents gave them something like $30,000 down payment. They did a little DIY, fixed the house up, tiling, put in a pool. Lacey then started a part-time job as a substitute teacher and scott got a job with trade usa a newly founded subsidiary of a european fertilizer company for which he earned a salary of five thousand dollars a month before taxes that was pretty impressive especially for the late 90s and especially just starting out now it goes without saying that Lacey wanted to be the perfect housewife Scott's sister Anne, again, described Lacey in her book as someone who just had an incredible eye for detail. She wanted everything to be perfect and in its place, and she was very house proud, as they say. She loved cooking and entertaining guests. She loved watching Martha Stewart. She was sweet, direct, honest, but always kind, according to Anne. Anne absolutely loved her, as did everyone else except for Jackie. It begins to be quite obvious that Jackie wasn't at least super crazy about Lacey. Now as a separate person, I think Jackie liked her okay, but for her golden boy, not good enough and really no one would ever be. To Jackie, Scott could do no wrong and no woman he showed attention to would ever be right. She was that mother-in-law. I know, I know. But kudos to Lacey for not only putting up with that, but wanting to be the life partner most anyone would absolutely love to have. So in 2002, Lacey found out that she was pregnant. She was absolutely over the moon, happy to be pregnant, and full of this limitless excitement about the whole journey. She told everyone how very excited she was to be pregnant and expecting their first baby, She had always wanted to be a mother. And this is where we would say that she just lit up the room, any room she entered, right? Except Lacey really did. Now, Scott had already taken golf back up as a hobby, and the couple, outside of Scott's affairs, seemed to be doing really good. They were settling into domesticity. Lacey enrolled in a prenatal yoga course, and together they attended Lama's classes. She and Scott decorated the nursery blue with a nautical theme when they found out they were having a boy. So cute. And her due date was in early February. But in November prior, someone decided to introduce Scott to a young single mother named Amber Frey. She hadn't had luck in the love department, but she was hardworking and she loved her very young daughter, who I think was a toddler, and she was making her way through life. She was a massage therapist. Amber later stated that the two met up for a blind date in late November of 2002. She described Scott as handsome, charming, thoughtful, and romantic. He told her he was single and ready to settle down. He told her that he had never been married, which we know is a lie. Over the next few weeks, Amber and Scott grew quite close. Sources said that Scott had won her over with his warmth, his humor, his intelligence, and he even won the heart of Amber's very, very young daughter. Before long, he began to speak of the beautiful future the three of them were destined to share as a family. Scott had told her, though, that he was not interested in having children of his, lo- of his own, that he was perfectly content with it just being her and her daughter. So that's an interesting thing to say when your wife is at home becoming uncomfortably far along in her pregnancy. And then Amber began to suspect that Scott might not be the man that he was advertising himself to be. So as the story goes, Scott told a friend that he was looking to meet single women. The friend was unaware that he was married. The friend that had set them up on the blind date found out that Scott was in fact married and told him that if he didn't tell Amber, they would. So on December 9th, 2002, it was said that he broke down in tears and told Amber that he had been married but had quote lost his wife. He told her that this would be his first holiday season without his wife, and Amber felt real bad for him. You know, he was so upset that she really didn't press for any further information. She didn't know how his wife had been, quote, lost, and he didn't say. Scott told Amber that he would be spending Thanksgiving in Alaska, fishing. He told her he was going to Maine for Christmas, and he told her he was going to be in Paris over New Year's as he was traveling for business in Europe through January. This is what he told her. And while all of that was going on, Lacey's brother's wife, so Lacey's sister-in-law, asked Scott if he was ready for a child. And he responded, quote, I was kind of hoping for infertility, end quote. Now, she stated she hoped he was joking, but it appeared that he was not. She watched his face, his body language nothing indicated her to her that he was joking. Court documents state that Lacey's siblings did, however, believe her and Scott's marriage was at least fine. It was good. He was seen helping her with chores. He stayed patient with her if she was upsetting him for whatever reason, you know, couples argue, etc, etc. A few weeks before Lacey disappeared again, according to Anne, Scott's half-sister, Anne and her husband planned this big trip to Disneyland with the whole Peterson clan before they got super busy with new babies and whatnot. Anne had just had a baby. Lacey was going to have one in a few months, right? So they went to Disneyland and Lacey talked a lot about the baby and having the baby. She was so excited. And yet Scott didn't say much. He said he couldn't wait to play football with the little guy, and that stood out to Anne as not anything unusual that a man would say, but he just didn't get into how excited he was about the baby, just didn't really act like it. In fact, Anne stated that Scott was actually on the phone a lot and didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to Lacey at all, like he was off to the side on his phone. And then at Lacey's baby shower, Anne said that Scott, quote, was distant, he didn't talk very much. I asked him if anything was bothering him, and he said no. Quote. In fact, Lee and Jackie, Scott's parents, said that the last time they saw Scott and Lacey together was a happy time, the week before Christmas, two thousand two. The older couple had met up with the younger pair for a three day visit in Carmel. Jackie said quote, I remember thinking she has grown into such a nice young woman. And while Lee and Scott played golf, Jackie and Lacey went shopping together, talking about the baby and picking out the presents that they hoped their husbands would buy them for Christmas. Four days later, Jackie said she and Lee went to Christmas Eve services in San Diego. Driving home, they looked at the moon and talked about how things seemed to be going so well for their whole family. But we already know that that was not the case, baby. Scott had gone to a Christmas party with Amber Frey and photos were taken of them together in this intimate setting. So plant this in your mind. Scott had zero issue with his photo being taken with his mistress openly at a Christmas party. He didn't seem at all concerned with anyone else seeing that photo which always stuck out in my mind. Maybe it's nothing but it always kind of stuck out for me. Okay so here we are around the time Lacey disappeared. Here's where I'm going to do my upper best to stick to the timeline, the chain of events, and be as non-biased as I can. I'm going to try to give arguments for both sides. December 6th, 2002. Amber Frey confronted Scott about being married, and this is when he told her that his wife was dead or that he had lost her and this would be his first Christmas without her. December 7th, the next day. It was discovered that Scott had gotten on his computer and searched for fishing and boating, like boats for sale. December 8th, Scott researched water currents in the bay. Now the counterargument to this is that he was searching currents for only about 30 seconds or so. So December 9th, he bought a small V-bottom metal boat or aluminum boat for $1,400 And the man that sold it to him said Scott paid in cash with $100 bills. So Scott paid for it in cash because the seller asked for cash and Scott did give him his real name. Some of the conspiracies were that, you know, he used cash to be under the radar. No, the seller asked for cash. Okay. So... He gave him his real name as well. Now, the counter to this boat situation is also that Scott had owned boats before. A man later told police that he was supposed to go in on a boat with Scott that same month, so December 2002, but he had had to back out. Another friend of Scott's stated that Scott had spoke about wanting to buy another boat weeks before Thanksgiving of that year. That would put him speaking about wanting to buy a boat before he even met Amber. So there you go. Now the boat itself was 14 feet or 4.27 meters long and was equipped with fishing gear, fishing chairs, two pole holders, a trolling motor, which if you don't know, that's, it's like a tiny motor that kind of gently and slowly pushes the boat through the water. The boat also had a fish finder, which would show him water depths. Two witnesses stated that they saw Lacey with Scott at the warehouse where he stored his boat, indicating that Lacey was at least aware that Scott had bought a boat. December 16th. Four fake college diplomas were purchased by someone using Scott's credit card, and they were shipped to him, as in his name on the package. When he was later questioned about them, Scott said that they were not part of an effort to reinvent himself but a gag gift from his wife who liked to tease him about how long it took him to finish his degree. I think it's weird. Detectives noted the diplomas were charged to his credit card and again, shipped to him his name on the package. So there's that. Now, another interesting bit of information. According to a Modesto Police Department report, quote, Investigator Kirk Stockham conducted a search of data contained in four computers seized during search warrants for his residence and worksite. Stockham said three of the computers were used exclusively by Scott Peterson and had been used to obtain information regarding Viagra, to obtain information regarding the Berkeley Marina, as well as the Berkeley Marina's water currents, and contained extensive pornographic images, and sexually explicit writings. Now, I'm not going to judge anyone for reading some smut. You know, that's, I'm not doing that. But some of the primary themes depicted in the pornographic images were bestiality and bondage. Bondage, you do you, boo. Bestiality, hell no. That's disgusting. The writings included essays titled things like The wife confesses and R-wording the teacher. You know what I'm saying. Investigators noted the Dell laptop computer that showed access by both Lacey and Scott had no history of inquiries regarding pornography or Viagra. So a little time goes by. That was December 16th. On December 23rd, 2002, 5.45 p.m., Lacey and Scott went to the salon that Lacey's sister Amy worked at, where Amy cut Scott's hair. Scott then offered to pick up a fruit basket that Amy had ordered because he would be playing golf the next day at a course that was kind of close to the place where the basket was being made. And Scott also told other people that he would be playing golf during the day on Christmas Eve, which was the next day after this haircut. The housekeeper that they had hired to help Lacey clean the house was there that day, earlier in the day as well, and she had mopped the floor. She left the house clean. Lacey also had had a prenatal doctor's appointment that afternoon, and a witness stated that she did not seem herself. The evening of December 23rd, Lacey's mother, Sharon, spoke with Lacey on the telephone around 830 that night. The last three people known to have talked to Lacey before she disappeared were Amy, her sister, Sharon, her mother, and Scott, her husband. Also on December 23rd, Scott spoke with Amber on the phone and reiterated that he wanted to get a vasectomy as he did not want biological children of his own. And she was a little upset by this because she was kind of thinking maybe she would want more children in the future, but he said, no way little bit of a side note here. I had to let the dogs in. They were scratching at the door. So if you hear them, I apologize. So on December 24th, Christmas Eve, Scott stated that he and Lacey got up that morning and had breakfast together. Scott later said that he had fully intended on going golfing that morning, but that the weather was cold and drizzly. So he decided to go fishing instead. Just wrap your mind around that. Now I looked up what the weather was in Modesto on this date. Weather underground shows that it was in the upper 30s that morning with a high of 40 by that evening, so it was indeed pretty cold. The winds that day didn't go above 7 miles per hour, so a very light, light wind, a pleasant, slow breeze, but cold. It was cold. It varied from fair conditions to partly cloudy that day before the evening. Now, I love to go fishing as long as it's not super hot and humid outside where I live. I live in Satan's armpit. Now, I live somewhat near a lake, actually, in the southern half of Missouri, and I have owned a boat. I can also tolerate the cold far better than most of the people I know. And I'm here to tell you, I stand on business, as the kids say these days, that no one is going out in below 40 degrees Fahrenheit in a boat on the water. It will feel much colder out on the water than on the land, I assure you. I promise you. So unless you were dressed for it, feeling like it was below freezing out on the water and certainly dedicated to catching fish, you weren't going out on that water for a bit of sport fishing. No, no, sir. Unless it was your livelihood or the way you were going to put dinner on the table, People just don't fish in that. It is so rare to even see a boat out on this lake I live near when it's below 50. So it's whatever, unless you have business on the water. So on the bay, the weather had been a bit foggy, but was otherwise clear during the largest part of the day. No haziness or anything like that. And because of the calm winds and whatnot, It is reasonable to assume that the water was not super choppy, but this is the ocean going into a bay. I don't live near the ocean with a bay, so feel free to correct me, but that's kind of my thoughts. Now, Scott said that when he left the house around 9.30 a.m. that morning on Christmas Eve, Lacey was getting ready to mop the floors. Keep in mind that the housekeeper had mopped the floors the day before. She was watching a Martha Stewart episode about making meringue as Lacey planned on making that. And then she also said she was gonna be baking some things and she was gonna take their golden retriever, Mackenzie for a walk to a nearby park. Now, Lacey's mother later testified that Lacey walked Mackenzie every morning. The counter to this statement is that sources said Lacey's doctor had told her to stop going for walks a few weeks prior to this as she was becoming advanced in her pregnancy. So that can go either way, honestly. But even if she had been feeling tired or sick or having some complication during the last part of her pregnancy, if she were mopping and planning on walking the dog, she could have hit that nesting phase that many pregnant women hit. It's kind of like a burst of energy right before you go into labor. Lots of women experience this. Another noteworthy aspect is that when detectives were later in the home, they said there was no scent of any cleaning products in the home. But, you know, again, that can be explainable considering this was quite a few hours after she would have mobbed if she did mop. Okay, so back to 9.30 a.m. Scott leaves the house, according to his statement. At 10.18 a.m., a neighbor saw Mackenzie outside with his leash still attached. She knew this was not normal and she went outside, retrieved McKenzie and shut him in the backyard of the Peterson home for his safety at about 10.30 a.m. Very neighborly. Another neighbor said he had been outside playing with his dog when he saw McKenzie out at 10.45. So that puts the timeline of McKenzie being found alone outside out of the fence between 10.18 and 10.45 a.m. So roughly a half hour span. That's live withable. The mail carrier was in the Peterson neighborhood from between ten thirty five and ten fifty AM and again saw nothing unusual. Scott was at the warehouse until he said he finally got the boat out on the water around noon and fished by himself for a couple of hours before calling it quits. Scott stated that he called Lacey at two fifteen PM and left a voice message saying, quote, Hey, beautiful. I won't be able to get to Villa Farms to get that basket for Papa. I was hoping you would get this message and go on out there. See you in a bit, sweetie. Love you. Bye. So, he is, of course, referring to this fruit basket that he had told Lacey's sister that he was going to pick up. At around 3.45 p.m. that afternoon, Amy Lacey's sister received a call from the place that had made the fruit basket, stating that no one had come to pick it up. She called Scott's cell and home phone, but he did not answer either. The neighbor that had shut Mackenzie back in the backyard noticed that a delivered box was still in their mailbox, like a package, and had been there since the later morning, which jives with the mail carrier. This neighbor said Scott's truck was not there at 345. Another neighbor stated that they saw the Peterson's Christmas lights come on around 430, even though Scott's truck was still not there. However, Scott said he got home at around 430. This same neighbor finally saw that Scott's truck was in the driveway around 530 p.m. and had been backed into the driveway. I could not find whether or not he normally backed his truck into the driveway. Most people don't do that, but it is what it is. I I really couldn't find out. So we have the Christmas lights coming on at 430, even though Scott's truck wasn't there, but his truck was in the driveway around 530 p.m. and he backed in. Scott stated that he assumed Lacey was out running errands with a friend or something, which again is quite plausible. So he changed his clothes and washed them right then. Some sources said he took a shower. Other sources didn't mention a shower, but I'll throw that in. He changed his clothes. He washed them right then, as in he pulled out wet towels that were already in the washer to wash his clothes that he had on for fishing. Now, a point I want to make here is that yes, when you go fishing and you are messing with stinky bait or cleaning the fish for consumption, part of the fishing experience is that you are going to get dirty, plain and simple. But why would he immediately wash them so quickly? It's not unheard of, but definitely not normal. He didn't bring any fish home that he had cleaned. He should not have been very dirty, but okay, okay. At around 5.15 p.m., so this is 15 minutes before the neighbor saw his truck in the driveway, Scott called Lacey's mother to ask if Lacey was there. He said her car was in the driveway, but that Mackenzie had been left in the backyard with his leash still attached and Lacey was missing. He used the word missing. Scott allegedly called some of Lacey's friends to see if she was with them, and he was told no. Scott called her mother back and said none of her friends had seen her. The mother suggested that he contact the neighbors. Scott did, called her back and said he had contacted them, but that none of them had seen her. And now the police were called, and they arrived at this park that Sharon and Scott knew Lacey liked to walk the dog to. They asked the police to meet them at the park. Then at around 6.30, the police arrived at Scott and Lacey's house. There were no signs of a break-in, no signs of forced entry, no evidence of a burglary. Officers noticed a bucket with two mops sitting outside an exterior door, and the ground near it had a wet spot. They saw a rug that was, quote, bunched up against the door to the living room, as well as wet rags containing sand and dirt on top of the washing machine. Now, these could have been what he took out of the washing machine, although I don't know why it would have sand on it if the housekeeper was washing them. They'd been in the house. But listen, if he had been fishing, he would have certainly wanted to clean the sand and the dirt off of himself. It's not outside the realm of possibility. The closet in the spare room was open. There was a duffel bag lying on the floor and another one kind of stuck on the hangers. Somewhat upside down is the picture that I... Got out of the information. Okay, it appeared that it had been sort of jerked or pulled off the shelf. There was a random box of pizza and a bottle of ranch dressing. Some of the pizza slices were gone, but the rest of the house looked completely normal. They found Lacey's purse containing her ID, you know, all of her things, keys, all of that, hanging inside of a closet, which is where she often put it. So that's normal. But again, if she's not home and her purse is hanging up, that's an issue. So time to question Scott, right? So they asked him what time he started fishing and he did not want to answer them. He was hesitant. They asked him if he had been fishing, what he had been fishing for, and Scott blew off the question. He never actually answered it. They asked him what kind of bait or lure he had been using and he gave them a confused look. This, was, this is directly from court documents. Then finally, he said he had been using, quote, a silver lure, using his hands to show the length of this lure to be estimated at seven to eight inches in length, which if you're ocean fishing makes sense. In the back of Scott's truck, they found umbrellas that had been wrapped up in a tarp and another tarp pushed up against the toolbox up by the cab inside were two unused fishing lures inside the truck with a receipt that showed he had bought them on december 20th a two-day fishing license that would have expired before Lacey's disappearance and a fishing pole that had also been bought on december 20th they noticed his heavy jacket in the back of the truck that and it was completely dry i think it was maybe over a headrest or something But it was completely dry when Scott had told them that it had been raining on him, which is why he quit fishing. He said his fishing clothes were wet, all of that. Jacket was bone dry. The weather stated that it never rained. Scott's parking receipt for the marina showed he had purchased it at 1254 p.m., even though he said he had started at noon. But that's under an hour. So, you know, plausible. They then had Scott go with them to the warehouse to have a look at the boat. And in the boat, they found a homemade anchor with a bent piece of what looked like rebar in the middle, kind of bent as a handle. There were fishing poles, red rope, spare tire, some tools, tackle box, life jacket. And really, that all seems very reasonable for someone who likes to go fishing. I mean, you really do kind of need those things. In the bed of his truck was also a claw hammer with basically cement dust and debris on it and the cement powder and residue from making the anchor. They said there was a large storage container in the bed of the truck, but this would be that really big toolbox. Now, Scott told family members and his own neighbors that he had gone golfing that day, as in after Lacey was missing and he had led the authorities all around and telling the authorities that he had gone fishing. He told them that neither Lacey nor he were having any affairs. Marriage was perfection. Scott called the detectives the next day to ask if they were using cadaver dogs to try to locate Lacey. Of course, they told him no because they were working on the assumption that she was still alive. Noteworthy. So Scott called Amber later that night and told her that he and his family were going to bed during his trip to maine if you remember he was later observed taking down any and all photos of the two of them together like wedding photos or pictures of them together on the missing posters what have you when he was questioned about it he said he wanted the focus to just be on Lacey. he did not appear to be interested in talking to the press but to counter that who would honestly right? So searching inside the boat at the warehouse, they found a pair of needle nose pliers under one of the seats with what appeared to be a human hair. A forensic criminologist specializing in hair evidence compared it to a sample of Lacey's hair from the home, and he said microscopically they were a match. The hair was not a match to Scott. So mitochondrial DNA matched to a sample given by Lacey's mother, that all matched. Um, there was some questioning with regards to the accuracy of mitochondrial DNA, but it was reiterated that that the, the DNA that they got from Sharon and from this hair that belonged to Lacey, that they shared a maternal lineage and that it was kind of a rare setup. So take that as you will. So, but there was no blood or tissue on the pliers at all. So my counter to this would be that, hey, My family members regularly groan about finding my hair on them and on their things, so there is that. I mean, we get hair everywhere, don't we? And he had fishing poles and lures in the boat. All of that seemed consistent. There was some hubbub about the homemade anchor. Scott said that he had made the anchor himself by pouring cement into a bucket, just enough that the anchor weighed about eight pounds. He said he had put the rest of the cement on his driveway. Indentations in the bottom of the anchor prove that he did use a bucket, but they found this big pitcher in the boat with cloudy water in it with what appeared to be like a cement slurry in it, kind of. But there were two other buckets in the warehouse with cement residue in them. So it makes me wonder where the other anchors are if he had made more than one. It's just a thought. The takeaway was that for allegedly one to eight pound anchor, there was cement residue on the warehouse floor, the boat trailer, the truck bed, the boat cover, the boat cover, and the dining room floor of Scott and Lacey's house. December 26th, the canine search teams were getting involved. They gave the dogs Lacey's scent And they found Lacey Peterson's scent in areas that suggested she left her home by vehicle, not on foot, and had been in her husband's boat. The dog triggered on the boat. But to counter this, it was said in numerous sources that one dog in particular's success rate was not even quite 70%. And that's kind of important. December 27th. Amber tried calling Scott and was surprised that he answered. She'd only meant to leave him a message and was just sure that he was supposed to be on a plane to Paris. He told her that he was in New York, that his flight had been delayed. He called her back a couple of hours later and said he was about to board his flight. She was becoming quite suspicious of him and relayed this to him, and he responded that he just needed to be more sensitive to her needs but she continued to be suspicious. She was a smart girl. December 30th, Amber found out that Scott was connected to Lacey and her disappearance. She was very upset. She called the Modesto police department tip line and spoke to a female officer and asked about it all. And the dispatcher was able to confirm to Amber that Scott and Lacey were married. She was very advanced in her pregnancy and she was also missing. So, Amber confessed about her relationship with Scott. The police followed up with Amber. She showed them the Christmas photo and other pictures they had taken together, and to make a very long story short, they gave Amber a recorder to record her and Scott's conversations. They told her to keep playing along that he was in Europe. So, the police wanted to give Scott a polygraph test, and he refused. Now, we know that they can be pretty unreliable, but at that same time or in the same breath were it me, I would do it if I had nothing to hide. Now, while the search was going on to find Lacey, it was noted that Scott seemed quite distant, unemotional, uncaring, not terribly interested at all. But to counter that, one really shouldn't judge how another person grieves. In fact, Anne, the sister again, told Oprah, quote, the entire time that I saw him, I never saw any grief. I never saw any sadness. I actually never saw him looking for Lacey, end quote. Then, get this, his satellite television company noted that Scott upgraded he and Lacey's package to include some adult channels while she was missing. According to CBS News, quote, But about two weeks after he reported his wife missing, Scott Peterson changed the account to include the Playboy channel and altered the service again five days later to include more explicit adult channels. But it was pointed out that the adult channels Scott selected were legal and noted that even the satellite company characterizes the programming as, quote, adult content, not pornography. Adult or not, that comes across as knowing your wife isn't coming home, doesn't it? So as he became an official suspect, Anne told him that he could stay at her house. According to Anne, the room Scott stayed in had a view of San Francisco Bay where authorities were searching for Lacey's body. She said, quote, Every time they looked in the bay and Scott was in our living room watching TV, he would get really upset and his tone was different. He was a little bit louder. Why are they wasting their time? Why are they looking there? They're looking in the wrong place. And I could not understand why he was saying these things. End quote. Anne said in her book that Scott was drinking a bit and seemed pretty unbothered by it all, actually. She even indicated he seemed to be kind of celebratory. And this is the half-sister again that had been adopted, so on and so forth, who had only very recently gotten to know her biological family. So she was one of the more unbiased witnesses, in my opinion. Not to mention that she and Lacey had really kind of struck, struck up a friendship. So December 31st was Lacey's candlelight vigil. I think she had more than one, but on December 31st, they had a candlelight vigil for Lacey. At one point during the vigil, Scott was on the phone with Amber, sounding upbeat, telling her that he's ringing in the New Year at a Paris bar with his friends, quote, Pascal and Francois. He told her, quote, it's pretty awesome, fireworks there at the Eiffel Tower, a mass of people all playing American pop songs, end quote. In another call the same night, he told her that the Parisian celebration was so festive it was, quote, unreal. He was talking to her at his wife's candlelight vigil. In the weeks after Lacey disappeared, Scott sold her car. Oh, Scott was the prime suspect at this time, by the way. So towards the end of January, Amber spoke to the media about her and Scott's relationship. Now, okay, it's time for the rough stuff. April 13th, 2003, four months after Lacey went missing, the body of a full-term fetus was found on the shoreline of San Francisco Bay by a couple walking their dog. It was baby Connor. Some sources stated that he was mutilated, but here's what the autopsy actually says, and if you need to skip this, by the way, please do so. I'm about to read from an infant's Autopsy report, so disclaimer, disclaimer. Okay, external exam. The external exam revealed no clothing since it was a fetus. There was some material associated with the body, particularly some clear plastic tape, a lot like wrapping tape or boxing tape. One and a half loops of plastic tape around the neck of the fetus with a knot near the left shoulder. The skin beneath the tape was not injured and there was approximately a two-centimeter gap between the neck and the tape when pulling the tape, so it was firm against one side of the neck. The tape was removed by cutting it. It was concluded the association between the body and the tape was coincidental. The tape merely ended up on the body. Completely plausible. There was also some material over the left ear, adhering to the head, which the examiner believed to be kelp, or other vegetative material. However, when it was removed, the ear remained folded over and there was a purple discoloration on Connor, which the examiner said is more consistent with the iodine in kelp than with any bruising. Connor was decomposing in general terms. He weighed 1,160 grams, approximately two and a half pounds. The crown of his head measurement could not be taken because the head was collapsing crown heel length was 48 centimeters or approximately 19 inches based on these measurements connor would have reached or could have reached full term the skin was quite soft in keeping with maceration an effect on tissue soaking in fluid no vernix on the body which is like kind of that moist covering of a newborn baby The bones in the skull were overriding, which happens as the brain liquefies. There was a tear near the right shoulder that exposed skeletal muscle and the structures beneath. The tear extended onto the abdominal wall and portions of the small and large intestines protruded through the tear. There was no scalloping, no curved marks around the edges. Concluded it was simply from tissue falling apart or being pulled apart due to tidal action or from the water. It wasn't due to animal feeding. A portion of the colon protruded from the bottom. There was a portion of the umbilical cord present measuring a half centimeter less than one-quarter inch and the edge was ragged like it fell apart or might have been pulled apart, but it was not cut. There were no specific changes in either congenital abnormality or disease. The organs in general were soft and liquefied in keeping with decomposition. The spleen and kidney could not be weighed because they were liquefied there was more liquefaction inside the right side of the chest as opposed to the left because of the tear. The changes were simply the result of decomposition and immersion. They estimated Connor's age to be near full term. This is consistent. They could not rule out if he had been born alive as in before Lacey died. They couldn't rule it out, but they said uh, like 99% sure he was not born before she died. The next day, April 14th, Lacey was found only a couple of miles north of the marina Scott said he had gone out fishing from. To be specific, a decapitated female, or she was at least missing her head, the female body with missing sections of limbs washed up on the shore of San Francisco Bay near where Connor's body was found the day before. So here's your warning as I'm about to go over Lacey's autopsy. The exact date and cause of Lacey's death were never determined. Her cervix was intact, meaning it was closed. She had not given birth. They found an opening near the top of Lacey's uterus caused by decomposition. Her uterus was still enlarged. And if a woman gives birth, I'm telling you that if a woman gives birth, her uterus begins shrinking immediately after. I know this. I've experienced it. She had suffered two cracked ribs, but the pathologist could not determine if this occurred before or after her death. Lacey's upper torso had been emptied of internal organs except for the uterus, which protected the fetus, explaining the much lower level of decomposition the fetus experienced when doing Connor's autopsy. The examiner concluded that the fetus had died in utero and determined that he had been expelled from Lacey's decaying body though when cross-examined in court he conceded that he could not determine whether he had been born alive when this occurred but again since Connor wasn't nearly as decomposed as Lacey it is highly likely that he was expelled after remember the cervix was shut okay there was a hole in the top of her very swollen and big uterus from whence he came as she was decomposing, I'm sorry. There were no weapon marks on the bones, meaning they could not say that she had been dismembered by a person, but leaning towards not, no no tool marks. Lacey's corpse was missing the head, neck, forearms, and part of her left leg, and her internal torso cavity was exposed, showing a rib cage and other bones speckled with barnacles. April 18th, The DNA results came back that the two bodies were, in fact, Lacey and Connor. They went to go arrest Scott, but he was missing. He was found in La Jolla, California, with his dark hair dyed blonde and his car filled with $15,000 in cash, four cell phones, two driver's licenses, one being his next older brother's, several changes of clothes, and survival or camping gear. Because he was near the Mexico border, prosecutors accused him of planning to flee the country. Scott's father, Lee, explained that Scott had used his brother's license the day before to get a San Diego resident discount at the golf course, and that Scott had been living out of his car because of the media attention. And I believe this is the car that he bought under his mother's name, not his own name. Don't hold me into that, but I'm pretty sure. Oh, and there was mention that he was gearing up to sell the house while Lacey was just considered missing, saying that if she were found, well, he wouldn't want her to have to live in that house. Whatever the fuck that means. April 21st, Peterson is charged in uh, Stanislaus County Superior Court before Judge Nancy Ashley with two felony counts of murder with premeditation and special circumstances, and he pleaded not guilty. So that's the whole story before the trial, which I'm going to leave alone. It was believed that Scott had made more than one homemade anchor, tied the extra anchors to Lacey's body in various places like on her limbs, you know, maybe around her neck, and dumped her overboard from his new boat wrapped in a tarp. Now, there are some conspiracy theories that a satanic cult kidnapped her and cut her baby out. But the autopsy results prove otherwise. There was no cut to her abdominal wall. They specifically stated that. But the big theory that has come to light that might get him a new trial is a Peterson neighborhood robbery. The Los Angeles Innocence Project is also hoping to conduct new DNA testing on a blood-stained mattress found on December 25, 2002, in a burned-out orange van discovered near the Peterson home. So this would have been the day after she went missing. So in other words, again, the day after Lacey was reported missing, a suspicious van caught on fire less than a mile from the Peterson's home, court documents stated. The van appeared to have been intentionally ignited to cover up a crime, court documents show. The investigation will determine whether the item contained Lacey's blood, which could be argued links her back to the burglars, the organization said. This is because a house across the street from the Peterson's home was burglarized around the same time Lacey disappeared. But this is within like two or three days, not the day. Okay. Okay. Peterson's attorneys say the burglars could have kidnapped and killed Lacey. Two of the burglars were later caught and interviewed by police. The burglars denied having anything to do with Lacey, but of course they're going to deny it, so that's kind of whatever. The burglary occurred sometime between December 24th and December 26th. All MPD investigation, Modesto Police Department investigation, and other police reports memorializing the steps that they took to verify the alibis of Stephen Todd and Donald Glenn Pierce, establishing their whereabouts on December 24th. All police reports, audio and video recordings, and other relevant materials indicating that Modesto Police Department verified the truthfulness of the statements of Stephen Todd and Donald Glenn Pierce provided and cleared them of any involvement in the disappearance of Lacey Peterson. So that's the whole story, not including any of the unimaginable blunderings during the trial. That is the whole story. So what do you guys think? Now, is Scott Peterson an asshole? Oh, unequivocally, absolutely an asshole. You know, you you, sh- you shouldn't cheat, but I mean, his wife was hugely pregnant and he made her go to some Christmas party alone because he had to go to that Christmas party with Amber. You know, he didn't want to have kids. He was, didn't appear to be or was not happy about Lacey being pregnant. You know, he wanted a vasectomy and all these crazy things. And Lacey was kind of not acting herself or seemed to be a little out of sorts or upset kind of there towards the end of the pregnancy because maybe Scott was being a dick about being a dad. He just wasn't interested, you know, but does being an asshole make him a murderer? No, there are plenty of people out there that cheat on their spouses that would never harm anyone. You know, they just, they have sex issues or whatever is going on. They're not going to... Kill someone in cold blood, especially a very defenseless, teeny tiny, pregnant, hugely pregnant woman. Being an asshole does not mean he's a murderer. He is guilty of a great many things, but did he kill her? You know, I still think that he did. I think he's the only one that stood to gain anything from it. I think that the burglary was probably just coincidence, but the... The burned out van with the bloody mattress. I'll, I'll be curious to see what the DNA results are from that. I'm still leaning that he's guilty, but I would love to know what you guys think. Please leave me a comment. DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. I'm very active over there. Or you can join the Serial Killing a Podcast fan page that a beloved listener created for us to kind of be our own community. I'm very active on there as well. Shout out to the homies on the Facebook page. And outside of that, guys, thank you so much for listening. Because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Sorry that this one is so, so long, but I wanted to make sure that I got all of the big stuff. There's like little other things that are really kind of immaterial, but that's pretty much the story. So I hope that this was a good refresher. Let's see if he gets a new trial we're all just hanging in there, aren't we? Have a great day, guys. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer, and whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time. And then uh, in the early '80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.